This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we're going to wrestle with the questions surrounding the authorship of the text. Short and sweet description there. Big discussion. Big discussion. Short description. Yeah, I, I debated. I had, even up to just this week, um, I debated putting this podcast in here, whether it's necessary. Um, I don't. I don't do this podcast to provoke or just be obnoxious. I don't do it to, um, but I do this podcast. I mean, we've been doing this now for a while. Like people, if you've been listening with us up to session three, you are, you are used to our methods. You understand what our jam is. Like we're trying to think critically. We're not going to shy away from questions because asking questions is good. And if you're just taking everything that I say and everything that I teach at wholesale, then unfortunately we've probably missed the boat somewhere. Um, now, I'm not just trying to provoke just to be a, a punk. I, I'm actually trying to provoke with things that I think have substance and ought to be considered. But I certainly don't uh, want anybody to think that I've got it all figured out or I think I have it all figured out. I, I don't. But there were conversations um, that I just wasn't taught in all of my education. And I just wasn't uh, like there were these passing references made to these things. But then just like f- kind of with a flip of the hand, we're just kind of like written off. Like there's this thing that exists, but that's ridiculous. So we just are going to move on. And I understand. And I've grown in my uh, – I used to be really angry. I think I've kind of worked through some of those things. And I understand where people are coming from. I understand the ideas. I mean I went to Bible college. The Bible college movement started yeah, as a reaction to – uh, the liberal arts movement, which is different now than it used to be then. Um, in the early 20th century, we were really battling with this, the rise of this uh, liberal textual criticism that was cold and disconnected from what I hope is a very warm, critical thinking. Like textual criticism was more about just critiquing the text from an academic, a cold academic perspective, rather than really wrestling with the content because we believe that it's life-giving and authoritative. And I do believe, I do believe, I do believe in the inspiration of the text. I do believe in its authority. I do believe in its, it's, it is unique in that it is, we, we say God breathed. It is imbued with this power to be able to transform and to change us. I'm very passionate about that. I hope I hope my listeners have picked that up at this point. Like I'm passionate about the text. It sure seems like it. <laughs> so, so I I, I don't ever want to. Uh, but in this world that I was raised in, we were reacting against. There was a whole world that I wasn't told was the default world, and that frustrated me when I found that out, and so. I don't want to do this podcast, and I do, because this podcast is one of the reasons why I've done all of the episodes. Um, And we've come a long way. Like, if you're still hanging with me and you're in session three, we've come a long way, and I think the timing is okay. I would not have done this in session one. So, so by the way, if you stumbled into session three, you need to go back and and start at the beginning and come with us on this journey, um, because we've come a long way. Uh, we've considered some things at session one very gently, softly. And as we've gone, we've grown and we've grown and we've grown and we've wrestled. And all of a sudden we're looking at source A and source B. I want to take that conversation to like thinking critically 3.0 today. 
because I think it's going to set up the gospels rather nicely um, to do this. And so I want to want to ask us some questions. I have a question for you, quick. Okay. Um, so your you went to Bible college. Yes. Did you have any Christian education before Bible college outside of like maybe Sunday school? Uh, not outside of just, uh, and I was very inquisitive. I, I was theologically minded. I cared about those things. So I studied those things. I rubbed shoulders with church staff frequently, but but no. Um, I cared about matters of theology and Christian living. So it was something that I read and I studied even as a high schooler. Um, but no, just Sunday school. I didn't go to a private Christian school. I went to a public uh, school, public education, cared about sports. I really didn't really care about my own personal walk of like matters of theology. Sure. But my own personal walk of faith didn't really click for me till I was a senior in high school. Um, so I, I was raised in it, never missed Sunday school, never missed, like I missed, but like there was never a season of my life when I was not doing all the things that church kids are supposed to do. Um, and that helped, but no Bible college was my, um, my my experience, although even that wasn't really normal, to be honest, Brent. I uh, I mean, I went to a school that was totally, I was raised in a Protestant Reformed church, Dutch Reformed. Um, I, I came from a very Calvinistic background. I, I went to a Bible college that couldn't be more opposite from that. So uh, so my whole experience as an undergrad um, was was fighting. I don't mean on my bad days, it was fighting. And on my good days, it was just provocative wrestling. Um, I remember my first paper in Bible college, uh, was a paper on baptism. Um, it was supposed to be a six page paper on baptism. So, uh, at that point in study, I, I knew what they wanted to hear. I knew their perspective. I knew where they were coming from. So as an arrogant 19 year old freshman, I wrote a paper titled what you want me to say, a nine page paper on baptism and just wrote it just like they would want me to write it. And then I wrote, uh, 20 some odd page addendum titled what the Bible actually teaches. Like that gives you a snapshot of who I was in my first few years. Uh, That's one of my favorite stories. Really endeared the faculty and staff to me. I am still repairing relationships because of my naive arrogance and narcissism that I demonstrated as a Bible college undergrad. And that was the only time you did something like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was the only time I never caused problems outside of that. No, I was super obnoxious, but what it made me do is it made me study twice as hard, three times as hard just to back up my positions. And so I, I, I kind of just wrestled with all this stuff in and out and in and out. And that's kind of a part of my larger story, but, um, yeah. So, so I had that exposure, very thoroughly, if you would. I did go to a private Christian school, K through eight. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I did. I, I ended up moving and, and went to public school in high school. So I'm, I'm guessing this kind of topic probably wouldn't have come up before high school anyway, but yeah, I and certainly didn't, didn't have any exposure to this idea previously. Yeah. And honestly, I, I wouldn't, even if I ran the school, I don't think I would. Like I'm raising my own kids. Like my own kids don't. I haven't like brought the question before them. Did God really create the world in seven days? Uh, we haven't discussed evolution. My kids are eight and nine and a half. Um, there's an appropriate place to have these conversations. And I certainly wouldn't suggest having them at inappropriate places. But by the time you get to an undergrad education, it's time. Uh, it's definitely time to have those conversations. Um, and uh, so much of the stuff I just wasn't introduced to. So I'm going to try to do this really well um, because I've come to a new appreciation for my Bible college. I'm restoring some of those relationships. I, I love what they're doing. I'm very excited about the new chapters that Boise Bible College is writing. 
uh, and I need to I need to repair some of the attitudes that I've had in the past. Um, so I'm going to try to wrestle with this well out loud. But I want to ask a question. This isn't necessarily to you, Brent. This is more rhetorical for our listeners. When do you think the Bible was written? Like, when was the Bible written? And, and who wrote it? Now, there are some of us that come from different backgrounds that are very used to this critical conversation. But if you, I'm assuming a lot of my listeners, and maybe I shouldn't assume this, but I think I have experienced this with people I've talked to. Most of my listeners are trying to work through a deconstruction of a faith that they were handed uh, as a, from a fundamentalist perspective. I do have some listeners that are like new to the faith and all that kind of stuff. And I don't even know how this conversation works for all of them, but I'm coming from this. I was raised in a fundamentalist upbringing, uh, conservative perspective of Christianity. And I have a lot that I'm trying to work through and deconstruct and, and, and enable myself to think critically. So for a lot of us that grew up in that, if you grew up in that, it's like, well, well, Moses wrote Torah. Um, he got it on the mountain, which is, and I'm not here to tell you that's wrong or silly or ridiculous or you're an idiot. I just want us to think for a moment. Did Moses write the Torah? And with what time <laughs> did he write the Torah? You've wandered through the desert, Brent. Has writing down the books of Moses been something that you thought, yeah, I'll just knock this out in my spare time? I didn't think that, but they were out there for 40 years. So maybe in the cool of the <laughs> evening... <laughs> Maybe he, you know, was scratching onto a rock or something. Yeah, as they're wandering through there, and, and that brings up another question. And what on what is he? Now I don't want to, I don't want to get too crazy and flippant because I don't want to disrespect people that are just working through some of the stuff for the first time. Um, what did he write it on? On parchment that didn't exist yet. Uh, I mean, what point of history? When did he write it? Did he really write it coming down the mountain from Mount Sinai? So at uh, fourteen forty-two BC. He writes this on, does he chisel it on tablets? Does he, who, who writes this? When do they write it? On what? Who, who writes Joshua? And, and when does Joshua get written? Like as it's happening? Is, is there like a real time scribe like running around with their iPad and Apple Pencil, like jotting everything down. Is there a, is there a, who, who wrote Second Samuel? And, and when was Second Samuel written? How, how about our conversation about Isaiah? Four different voices. When was it penned? A, and who are the voices? Like we have kind of, we have just kind of poked at this and suggested this kind of in passing throughout session one and session two. And I kept telling, oh, we, we talk about it later. We'll talk about it later. This is kind of where we're at, where it's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to talk about this now. Um, who, who wrote all this down? Now, I think kind of the first step that some of us go on is we realize, okay, it didn't actually get written down until much later. Maybe bits and pieces got written down, uh, this and this and this and this, but, but it's an oral culture. I think some of us learn that over time and we get like, we're, we're okay with that. It's like, okay, it was an oral culture. So Moses didn't write down the 12, the, the five, 12 books. Listen to me. Moses didn't write down the books of Moses, the five books, but he did come down and he transmuted, like he gave it to them orally 
and then they kept those five books orally. So those those books were written, quote unquote, by Moses and 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 handed down. Of which I am not going to disagree at all. I actually personally, I personally give Moses all the credit for the content of the books of Moses. Um, those teachings, that authority, the 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 essence of what's in those books comes from Moses. In my mind, it's just how I sleep at night, it's how I choose to see it, it's how I understand, it. it's how my heart believes it, in my in, in all of my study. But when did they actually get written down? And are they written down word for word as they were orally transmuted? Is that the right word I'm using? Brent transmuted. Brent's checking for us. The man on the computer. Yeah. Okay. To change in form, nature, or substance. So changing from an oral record to a written record. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yes. Success. How did these things get from oral to written? Like, these are not questions. In four years of undergrad, I was really challenged to think critically about. Um. As soon as I started thinking critically about it, I became very bothered about it. Like I was like, yeah, how did that happen? And where did all these things come from? Uh, so one of, the, one of the passages that immediately comes up, if you've been really trained in the scriptures, is, well, you know, Josiah, they found, what did they find when they were cleaning out the temple? The scroll of the law. The scroll of the law. And you worded it just right, because some of our translations just say the book of the law, and we think that they found the five books of Moses. The actual word there says they didn't have books. Books have not been created at that point. They have a scroll. They found the scroll of the law. Now, I, I try to read the Bible not just discounting things. that I try to take word for word what it says uh, and try to understand it for what it's... I think they found a scroll. Cleaning out a closet, they found a scroll. What was the scroll? My hunch is it's the book of Leviticus. If something did get written down and is hiding in the temple, like if I was, if, of, of all the five books of Moses, if I were gonna actually going to pin something down, it would be the Levitical code that contains all the rules that are essential for running temple worship. And where would I keep that, Brent, if I were smart? In the temple. In the temple. That would be, uh, everybody doesn't have a copy. We don't have a printing press. There's no such thing as multiple copies of, like they might have multiple copies, but it's not like everybody, it's not like every tribe is running around with their copy of Leviticus. So it makes sense to me that there's a copy of Leviticus, a scroll of the law, a scroll of Leviticus that they find as they're cleaning out the temple. Um, that's how I read that. I don't read that as, well, they had a, a book of Moses, like the five books, kind of like a, attached in a binding that they found in the, no, 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 no. It doesn't say scrolls, plural. It says scroll, singular. Um, so, so it's not like they found five scrolls. They just found a scroll, scroll of the law. It's possible that it's bigger than, it's possible I could be wrong. All, all of the stuff I'm wrestling with, it's possible. It's possible that I could be wrong. But now that we're thinking critically about this, let me ask you a second question. L- let's say they're written down much, 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 much later when writing records becomes much more um, widespread. Let's say that's true. So, so what parts of the Old Testament, what parts of the Hebrew Scriptures do we think are written first? Do we think the books of Moses are written first? What do you think, Brent, would be written? Like if you're just thinking about all the different prophets, uh, like the historical records of the kings or books of Moses, what do you think would be, just logically, what would you assume would be written first? Well... There's there's such a focus on Torah, 
they they go through Torah yearly as opposed to the rest of it every three years. When do so, they start doing that, though, Brent? Well, I guess that's not until after Babylon. Ah, interesting. So let's uh, let's go back there. Let's keep wrestling with that. What do you think? Uh, what do you think now? Do you still think Torah? They're not going well, through no, it until I'm, after I'm Babylon. Saying, I'm saying it's probably not Torah oh, because they go through Torah so often. Uh, they've got that yes. well in their minds, okay, whereas yeah, 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 the rest yeah. of it, okay. not so much. So if there is an oral communication, it would make sense, especially if it came from Moses in some form or another. It would make sense that that's committed to memory, and that's not something they're going to write down, spend all their time writing down. Uh, okay, I like that thinking. Okay. So what do you think? Maybe, you know, maybe something like Psalms or Proverbs— Ooh, maybe. Okay. Lots of little pieces. Pieces that, of liturgy. Good idea. Know. Maybe. Perhaps. Okay. What else? Uh, maybe historical records. Uh, so like, like uh, uh, give me some books. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. Ooh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Like imagine a world where the very first thing's written down. You have oral law. You have oral stories. You have the stories of creation, of Genesis, of Abraham, of your family history. All those things are being communicated. But as far as a record that starts starts being written down, somewhere in the Samuel Kings, like maybe maybe Judges, but we kind of looked at possibly Judges and Joshua. Maybe have these agendas like they might be written later. So the prophets, like maybe the prophets did their work in real time, but are are they written down in real time? Are they written later as people are trying to preserve the prophets message? The common, I need to phrase this very intentionally. The common belief from scholars, not unanimous, common. Those are important words. There is disagreement amongst all of these things respectable. Sometimes there's like, there's disagreement you just can't even respect because it's not even like researched. But there are some respectable scholastic opinions that differ from the common opinion. But I was frustrated to find out the common opinion, common scholarly opinion amongst Christian and secular scholars that study the Bible, Jew and Christian alike, is that the Bible has written down much of it most of it, Hebrew scriptures, is written down during or after the Babylonian captivity. I was not told that. And when I find out that was the common assumption, it's okay that people want to disagree with it. Honestly, that's great. When I first heard it, I disagreed with it. There are still things I disagree with. But to not be told that was the common like the reason I do this podcast is to turn the lights on for some of us. Like there's a whole nother world you may not have been told exists. And I've, and I have been told literally and figuratively that I shouldn't bring this stuff up because it's going to make people lose their faith. I, I, I don't know where my listeners are at today. I, I think I see far more people lose their faith when they find out 20 years later, they essentially were lied to. Because there are all kinds of people that did know that this was the conversation and then decided not to tell anybody because that would be safer. That is not why I do this conversation, to play it safe. I want us to think critically. It makes, if you, if you pause, and this might be a podcast you have to like pause and then like replay or pause and then play again tomorrow or (laughs) like we may have to let some of this stuff marinate when you start to think about this this actually makes a ton of sense 
that there are a bunch of things that are orally communicated because all of the world was an oral culture. And then later, as you sit in Babylon, what was what, what, what were they learning in Babylon, Brent? We've talked about this in session two. What were they learning? Uh, they were learning where they went wrong, what they, you know, the things that they set to the side, they didn't obey or, or they didn't uh, respond to the prophet's yeah. warning. Wouldn't it make sense that a whole people group sitting in exile says, man, we better write this stuff down. This is this is bigger than we did not give this the credence that it should have had earlier. And so we're going to write this down now and we're going to create a whole new system that centers around synagogue and passing this on to our kids. Doesn't it make sense that this whole passion for the text arises? And part of that passion and part of that process is now all of a sudden taking all of these teachings, all of these stories, all of these records that have been passed on, sometimes in written form, oftentimes in oral form, and all of a sudden somebody writes them down. Just the books of Moses, Torah, there was a theory that I, when I, it was referenced, I remember in my undergraduate study, it was referenced kind of in passing like this crazy liberal idea that's called documentary hypothesis. The idea to summarize it very, very oversimplified, um, summarize it very quickly. The idea is that the, just the Torah, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy have at least four, if not more, different distinguishable authors. That when you look at the Hebrew and the word usage, just objectively, you have at least four different voices writing. I, I, we, I just never got invited to wrestle with that. I never got invited to look at the actual Hebrew. I never got invited to read the scholars. I never got invited to think critically about these things. Come to find out, I remember, I remember looking further into documentary hypothesis later going, golly, it feels like this is what everybody assumes. Like if you, if you dove into Brueggemann's book in last session, you bumped into it. You, you may have not even realized what he was talking about, but you're like, what, what in the world is he talking about? Like this author and that author and this and that. You bumped into it. If you, if you read scholastic material, it's the assumption that they're working from, at least in large part. It's the assumption that they're working from. Um, we're going to link uh, in our show notes, we, we're going to link a Wikipedia article. And again, Wikipedia is not the place where we do all our in-depth study. It's not where Bema gets all of its resources. Um, but it's a great place just to learn the basics of something. It's just going to give you a basic synopsis and give you a bibliography at the end and places where you can go and study and a bunch of other hyperlinks where you can look into it and study into it. Just peruse that article. Just look at the article on documentary hypothesis, also known as the Wellhausen theory, because he's the guy that kind of like looked at it and went, oh, hey, we have different Hebrew usages here. Like they're not using the same words in the same way. Like imagine, Brent, if we were to write something that was dug up 400 years from now or 1,000 years from now. Like we, we worked together and you wrote a piece of the story and I wrote a piece of the story and Jim Fight wrote another piece of the story and then we all put it together later. Could, do, you, do you suppose that there would be somebody looking at that going, I feel like I got two, like three different people writing here. Do you think that would be true? Probably. At <laughs> Probably least, pretty at obvious, least two. right? Probably pretty obvious that we have, we have different people. They just use language differently. They communicate differently. The, the Hebrew... It, I remember when I discovered this and I asked one of my friends who had went over to Jerusalem to study, study the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, I, I said, what's the, like, is documentary hypothesis, like, do people talk about it? Like, I was just learning about it. I'm like, do people talk about documentary hypothesis? Do they think, does anybody think that that's real? She said, it's the assumption. There are lots of people that have made convincing arguments against it, 
but it is by far the majority assumption. And I went, oh my goodness gracious. Which, listen, this is important for me. I, I believe in the authority of the scriptures. Document hypothesis for me does not equal, I don't believe they were <laughs> inspired. Like God breathed. Like I don't believe that God's involved in the writing of the scriptures. Even if you, if you go as far as plenary verbal inspiration or even dictation theory. Like I still believe that God's involved in the entire thing. Maybe even in the redaction. Redactor is the one who puts it all together, who compiles all the stories and puts it together in one unit. You can read about that in that article. Um, If anything, it makes more of a case for God's inspiration. Think of all the things we've studied, Brent, about chiasms and the way that this, like we even even looked at Torah, I believe, in session one and said that Torah was chiastic. Did we not? Did we do that? Yeah. Yeah. We said Torah was a chiasm with Leviticus at the center and Leviticus was chiastic with a center. If there are multiple authors behind the writing of Torah... And there's a chiasm at work there. What are the chances, Brent, that they all work together to put that chiasm in there? Not a snowball's chance. (laughs) Not a snowball's chance. What's the chance that the redactor did that on his own? Not much better. Like, if anything, I think documentary hypothesis shows God's fingerprints even more in the process. God's inspiration doesn't have anything to do with whether it was pinned on the top of Mount Sinai or pinned in Babylon. I don't care. What I care is that God was working through the writing, of the creation, the passing on, and then the eventual pinning of this text in whatever form that I have it, that it was God breathed. I don't care when it was written. Uh, inspiration has always equaled accuracy in the world I grew up in. That is not what inspiration means. Inspiration means it came from God. It was, it was God breathed. And if God wants to use allegory, if God wants to use parable, if God wants to use any of those kinds of things, God can do that. Because it's got it's it's inspired, um, so so those are pieces that I'm not going to resolve this conversation today. I just want to put it on the table and get us to think critically about what the Bible is doing. Because if the Bible is written in Babylonian captivity, take by the way another fun exercise. Just pick your book and go to Wikipedia. Pick the book of Daniel. Pick no, don't do Daniel right off the bat. Don't do that right off the bat. Do do pick a book, Brent. Pick uh, Joel. Joel. Do a Wikipedia search on the book of Joel and look for the dates of authorship. It doesn't mean that Wikipedia has the date. Listen to me. It doesn't mean that the book, that that Wikipedia has the dates of authorship correctly stated. It just means that Wikipedia is going to represent the commonly held opinion about when the book was written. Just search through the Old Testament books. Like, Pick a prophet, pick Second Kings, and see where Wikipedia, where the common opinion is of where that book is written. You will be astonished at the dates of the books. They are not where, if you were raised in the same kind of upbringing that I was raised in, you will be shocked to find out what the common understanding pick, is. Pick Job, perhaps. Pick Job. Oof, oof. I don't even. I haven't even done that. I kind of want to do that live. Hang on. Yeah. Okay. Look up Job. Book of Job on Wikipedia. And see when it, I, it, boy, that's going to be interesting. Because I grew up my my private Christian schooling. Uh-huh. When uh, I think middle school, probably we talked about the Book of Job, and like we established that it was the oldest book written in the Bible, written before, right. came before Torah, came right. before everything. Which even that, I was like, well, how does that work? Like, why would Job be older than Torah? 
Right. Like, who are these people? Right. Yep. Uh, like, but, yep. uh, you know, but that yeah. was, that was the belief. Yep. Oldest book in the Bible. Yep. I, it's very common. It's what I was taught in all the way through my upbringing and even in undergraduate education. Yep. He's got the article open. He's looking for dates of authorship here. I'm giving the play by play. Okay. Here we go. Rabbinic tradition ascribes the authorship of Job to Moses. Okay. Rabbinic tradition. That's going to be Midrash type. Okay. But scholars generally agree that it was written between the 7th and 4th centuries BC. So with... that is in between Assyrian and Babylonian exile. Okay. Anything else there you see? Um, anonymous author, probably an Israelite. Yeah. Story set outside of Israel, probably in a dome or Northern Arabia. Okay. So we have we, we have something that really backs up. If you were to go back and listen to our podcast there, you would really see some of that. Um, here's why this, this starts to get relevant. Like, why are we talking about this now? Because it's going to help us read the Gospels more critically, I, I believe more accurately. We're going to be able to get more of the right stuff out of the Gospels. It's going to help us interpret the Gospels better to start thinking this way, to start thinking about when something was written and why something was written. But it's also going to be relevant for the context of Jesus's. So, so here's why this is important. Let's let's go big and like like we'll start to zoom in and we'll end by looking at something very specific. Um, on a big level, if you were to go back to episode seventy-one, we'll link it in the show notes. It's in session two. It's towards the very very end of session two. Uh, episode 71 was something we called the prophetic table. I got a lot of good comments from listeners about that one. Uh, it, was where we, it was where we said, imagine Jeremiah and, uh, or at the last table, imagine Esther and, and Ezra and Nehemiah. Imagine these people coming in and sitting around a table. And we said that they would take a question like, what do you do about Persia? And we suggested that they were all having a what, Brent? A discussion. A, a discussion. A like, wrestling match. Yes. In our Bible, the different books, like Esther is talking about one way to approach Persia, while Ezra and Nehemiah are talking about another approach to how to deal with And Malachi, well, he ha- he's having another perspective about the Persia debacle. All of them inspired and all of them a part of the conversation, but all of them inviting the reader and the listener to try to figure out how to apply this biblical narrative to our own context realize that if if the Bible is written where scholars believe it's written, realize that your whole Bible is a gigantic prophetic table. The books of Moses contain different authors having a dialogue within Genesis, having a dialogue within Exodus, having a dialogue within Deuteronomy. There are these authors, and Deuteronomy is a bad example because it's probably all written by the Deuteronomist voice, but numbers, like there is this dialogue within the books of Moses, differing perspectives and approaches that are all woven together into one narrative. We talked about Joshua and Judges potentially being two different narratives about the same period of history. Why? Because there's a dialogue taking place about what happened when we came into the land. We talked about source A and source B between Samuel Kings and Chronicles. Why? Because there's a dialogue about two different perspectives about the same. Your whole Bible is a gigantic dialogue meant to be wrestled with, meant to be engaged. It's not simply a history book meant to record what happened. That takes place in there, but that's not why it's written. And it's not just 
God speaking to us, telling us. No, God is going to speak to us through this God-breathed narrative as that narrative takes shape within his God-breathed people. It is this ongoing dialogue that is so critically important. So now let's zoom in and take a specific example, and you'll see why it's relevant to the story of Jesus. We did the book of Daniel. You said that was episode 62, Brent? 62. We're going to link that in the show notes as well. Episode 62, we talked about the book of Daniel. Now, we talked about it as what kind of a prophet, Brent? Can you remember? Oh, exilic. Yeah, you got it. Your favorite section, the prophets. You got it. Exilic prophet, right? Um, And we talked about Daniel in the context of Babylonian exile. But as we went through it, if you remember, we talked about how there was a literary tool there. There was a double chiasm forming a larger chiasm, double chiasm. And, And this conversation, at one point, we got to the center of the second chiasm. And if you remember right, we we said... Well, if this is during Babylonian exile, I don't even know how to make sense of this, right? Like, this doesn't even make sense in Babylonian exile. Common scholastic opinion is that the book of Daniel is written mid-2nd century B.C. Mid-2nd century B.C. is when that story of Hanukkah that we talked about a few episodes ago The story of Hanukkah is taking place. They just overthrew the Greeks, handed leadership over to the who, Brent? The Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans, the Sadducees, the priests. And the priests immediately become what? Corrupt. Corrupt and Hellenized, right? If Daniel's written there, then this isn't really a story about Daniel and Babylon. Do you remember what Daniel meant? Son of man? Not quite. That was the the word for Daniel. Yeah. That was the image. But Dan, Danielle means God is my judge. It could be that Daniel, and maybe Daniel was a real guy that totally lived during Babylon. And all those stories were even based on, based on true events. And yet there's an underlying sub-narrative where Daniel is also allegorical. And maybe the Babylonian exile is simply an allegorical setting for a people now struggling with a Greco-Roman world that they feel subjugated to. So now, let's look at Daniel, not the whole thing. We're not going to go through the whole conversation of Daniel again. But I want to look at the center of those chiasms. If you need to review, if you're like, what are you talking about, center of the chiasms? Go review episode 62 before we finish this conversation. But we, there were two chiasms that formed a larger chiasm in the book of Daniel. So the front half of the book was written in Aramaic we said. And it formed a chiasm. Now, the center of that chiasm, Brent, I believe you have it, is chapter 4, verse 37. Okay, go ahead and read that. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. All those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So the first half of the book of Daniel has this crazy center where the pagan Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, praises and worships the God of heaven. Maybe that really happened. Maybe it didn't happen at all. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But if this is written mid-second century, and you have this pagan king praising God, 
What do you suppose, if I'm reading that in a Roman context or a Greco-Roman context, Brent, what do you think I'm taking away from that? Well, let's see. This is going to be, this is too early for Herod. Yeah, it's definitely going to be too early for Herod. That's correct. Not sure what was going on at that moment. Well, let's say that uh, Hellenism is coming and you're super worried, but you get handed a story where the first half tells me that the pagan king worships God. So Alexander the Great? Or, or let, let's I not get like, specific, okay. but just the pagan empire as a whole. Okay. What, what is your takeaway? It's possible that what? It's possible that it's it's fine if they're worshiping God. Like, it's let them come. Yeah. The first half of Daniel says, you know, crazier things have happened. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar grazed like a cow on grass and praised the Lord of, of hosts, the Ancient of Days. It, crazier things have happened. You know, you know, Greece and Rome. We just might be able. We just might be able to do this thing. What God called us to do, they might just come and bow down and worship God. Who knows? Crazier things have happened. What about the back half of the book? That was the part that didn't make any sense. In Babylonian, in the Babylonian period, we had no idea how to apply the second chiasm. What if it's written in the mid second century? Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and read. Uh, let's see. What do you got here? You got uh, nine twenty-five through twenty-seven. I may stop you as you read this. Fair warning. <laughs> Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. Okay, so right off the bat we have this vision of Jerusalem being restored, right? You've just won Hanukkah. One ha- That's a weird phrase. I shouldn't word it that way. Hanukkah's just happened. You've just overthrown the Greeks, and so now you write a book where the center of the second chiasm is Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. Okay, let's keep going. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Okay, so this isn't going to go easy. I wonder what they're experiencing right now. Probably times of trouble in the middle of the second century. All right, go ahead. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, oh my goodness. Now we always read this and go, Jesus, for obvious reasons. But if this is written mid the second century, and you have the anointed one coming, who is going to die... And there's going to be an abomination of desolations in the temple. What does this reference? Like if we don't assume Jesus and we just assume historical context, and this is written where scholars think it's written, what does the center of this chiasm talk about, Brent? Who has ruined the temple? Oh, the high priests. Exactly. The high priests have now become this anointed one who's come and they will be killed and everything will... Like this book, Daniel has all of a sudden become this pronounced judgment on the Hasmonean dynasty. On the front end, you had the pagan king worshiping God. And on the back end, you have the anointed one dying and screwing up the temple. Now, we always read that through the lens of Jesus, but read it through the lens of the original author. If this book is written where we think it's written, this is A, one of the most recent books, one of the most recent books in Jesus's day that's been penned. B, it is a huge indictment on the corrupt priesthood 
in Jerusalem. And the center of the chiasm was about the Son of Man. What does Jesus keep calling himself? Son of Man. The Son of Man. Why are the priests so worked up at the end of the story when they have Jesus on trial? They want to know, are you, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the son of man? And Jesus says, you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds. And he references the book of Daniel. Why? Because Jesus's statement is this provocative book that's just been written that you all hate because it's a condemnation of who you are and what you stand for. It's coming to pass. The, abomin- the, the abomination that causes desolation is here, and the temple is being destroyed, and, and it's all coming to pass. The book of Daniel is coming to pass. Not the book of Daniel about Babylon, but the book of Daniel that was written mid-2nd century BC about the Greco-Roman world. And so how does the book end? This book about Daniel, which means God is my judge, not end, but what's the center of the chiasm of it all? Go ahead and give me uh, Daniel 7. Verses 13 through 14, Brent, listen to how the whole chiasm centers. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was like a, was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Into a world that is struggling with the Greco-Roman Hellenism context and the corruption of the priesthood, the center of this book is, don't you worry, there is coming a day where God is going to make everything right. And that kingdom will last forever. I know that you're frustrated with Hellenism. I know that you're even more frustrated about the corruption of the priesthood. But God will come and judge appropriately and put everything in its proper place. And this is the book that Jesus keeps coming and associating himself with. Do you see why? I couldn't leave this conversation out. Not before we get to the Gospels. I don't know if it's right, brothers and sisters. I, I don't know if maybe maybe I've just given in to the liberal agenda. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's it. But uh, I, I am compelled by what a more critical, not a cold academic textual criticism a life-infused thinking critically about my Bible, I'm amazed at what it does to electrify the message of Jesus that we're about ready to start walking through. I'm amazed at what it does when I open up my Bible with a sense of wonder every single time going, who wrote this? When was it written? Why was it written? What new piece of context is there for me to, is there for me to learn today? This conversation has not made me lose my faith. This conversation has not made me lose my faith. This conversation has invigorated my faith. And I fundamentally disagree. I hope there aren't, there might be listeners out there that hear this and they're not just done with my podcast, but maybe it, I pray, I pray in Jesus' name that that doesn't happen. I just fundamentally disagree. When people say, Marty, you can't talk about this stuff because you're going to ruin everyone's faith. I say, absolutely not. 
Well, and if this is mid, if Daniel is mid second century, I'm looking at this uh, presentation from episode 75 with the uh, timeline of Hellenism. Yes. Early or uh, yeah, early second century, the Seleucids gain control and then the Maccabean revolt is uh, a couple, couple decades later. And then like, like they've experienced a lot of kingdom turnover. Oh goodness. Yeah. So that. That um, oh goodness yes Daniel seven passage like an everlasting kingdom like yeah what a dream that must sound like to them and speaking of dreams think about all the visions in the book of Daniel the statue the beasts the image and they all have all these different parts and we're told in Daniel when he interprets the dreams that every part of the statue every part of the vision corresponds to a different what to a different kingdom to a different kingdom. If this is written mid to second century, that makes all the sense in the world. If this is written in Babylon, we're all going, man, Daniel really peered into his crystal ball and God really gave him like a prophetic vision of the end. Or (laughs) this is written mid second century and they're simply talking about current events in the last few centuries and all the different kingdoms that have turned over and what's coming around the bend now and what's coming next and what's going to happen. It's much more apocalyptic in the sense that we looked at earlier than it is future telling. Then this kingdom will come and then this kingdom will come. And then like, and Daniel has no idea because he's just peering into the future. And he's like, I don't know. He doesn't doesn't know anything about Rome. Or the author knows everything about Rome sitting on the doorstep right around the corner. It just makes so much sense. And just because it makes sense to me doesn't make it right. But listen, we can think. We can wrestle. We can ask questions, and then we can go study people that have actually dedicated their whole life to studying this stuff. Like those PhDs that, that, that actually study this stuff that we get to read and then talk about, I'm not the PhD. I haven't spent my life studying the book of Daniel, but some people have. And when you spend your whole life working on one book, I'm pr- I imagine that you probably have a familiarity and you've noticed things that the general Bible reader just typically hasn't. And I know it upsets all of our small group Bible studies and our basic curriculum that we hand out. There's a better world out there. Wrestling with the text, it gives life, it gives power, it changes me, it stirs me, it provokes me, it makes me angry. That's what it's supposed to do. That is what it's supposed to do. Your Bible is an ongoing dialogue, and I have to shut up because I get really wound up about this stuff. So there you have it, Brent Billings. The text, who, when, where, and whatever else we said in the title. Uh, why, I think. Why? Why the text? Why the text? Why this story? Why now? Why? Okay, enough. <laughs> it is a big conversation. And uh, yeah, check out um, check out some links in the, um, in the show notes. I, I put the link to uh, that presentation from episode 75. So you can, uh, I was just, as we're recording this, I'm, I'm, lining those things up for the first time. Yep. Uh, I, you know, I, I kind of have that like Alexander the great three thirty BC yep. number yep. in my mind. Yep. And then I have like, you know, I start to get a little firmer, like Herod in like 63 or whatever, whenever he comes around. Oh yes. But like all that intervening stuff is still a little like fuzzy. It's yeah, yeah it's, it's not absolutely. quite there. So as we were talking second century, I'm like, man, what, what was really happening? Like, it's kind of crazy how it lines up. Yep. So 160, 150, 140 BC. Yeah. It's a big moment. 
So, and then we've got the Wikipedia page for documentary hypothesis. Uh, check that out. That is definitely a yep. launching point. That is, it's not even that long of a Wikipedia article. Nope, it's kind of, it's, a, it's kind of a joke as far as Wikipedia articles go. Yeah, sure. There's yep. not, you, you could, you could read the whole article, um, uh, in a reasonable, in a reasonable session. Yep. So check that out. There's links from there to, uh, all sorts of other sources. So use that, do your own study. Um, yeah, it, it's it's fascinating. And it doesn't mean that it's right. I mean, please hear me. Yeah, even if you ultimately decide this this is not something I want to believe in, like, that's fine. Absolutely. Just be aware of the conversation. Oh, my goodness, yes. I believe our listeners are big enough people. They can think for themselves. They can do their own research. In fact, I've pr- they've proven it. They've written me emails. They, they've studied some things more than I have. And that, yeah, you're going to do just fine. Just know that it's out there because I wasn't told and you need to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And let us know what you find. Yep. So, of course, you can find us on Twitter. You can uh, find us on BaymontDiscipleship.com. We've got a contact page there. Uh, we've got a Facebook page. There's a there's a Baymont Twitter account uh, where Marty tweets out stuff. Yeah. Um, the underscore Baymont. That's where you can find us on Twitter. Yeah. All the kinds of ways to get in touch. We do want to wrestle together. This is like Marty was saying, um, uh, I think, in the last episode. This is, this is not a... a a good place to uh, isolate yourself. You have to be in community. You have to wrestle together. So uh, if you don't have anyone uh, wherever you are, find a discussion group maybe, or just get in touch with us and and we'd be happy to talk to you. So once again, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.